Hey folks, it's Jared. Today I'm joined by Dr. Lawrence Okachuku Udiagbala, and we're going to compare and contrast the Nigerian and Biafra Navy's performance during the 1967 to 1970 Nigerian Civil War. Lesser known topic that I found fascinating. The episode was edited and produced by Jim Jarvie. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean. Chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on the website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shoemates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Lawrence Okachuku Udiagbala, and we're going to be discussing his chapter contribution to African Navy's historical and contemporary perspectives, entitled A Comparative Study of the Nigerian and Biafran Navies During the Nigerian Civil War, 1967 to 1970. So, Lawrence, welcome. Could you start by telling the listeners a little bit about your background, please? Okay. Yes, uh, like you rightly said, my name is uh, Lawrence Okachuku Udiagbala. I studied the history of international relations at Bayesian University, after which I moved to Obafemi Awolowo University, where I also studied history, before I then moved to Nigerian Academy to study military history. And after I finished my PhD, I joined Nigerian Academy. So my department here is Department of History and World Studies. Jennifer's Academy, Kaduna, where we teach cadets military history. Well, thank you very much for coming aboard. As a reminder to listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So this is a conflict that will be unfamiliar to a lot of our audience. Could you explain how Nigeria transitioned from the period of decolonization to the Civil War and then tell us the source of that conflict? Okay, thank you very much. Um, you know, when the quest for self-independence came, nationalists, they actually worked together to struggle for Nigeria's independence. But when it came, there were a lot of issues. First of all, you have to discuss the issue of colonial rule because Nigeria is a country of more than 250 ethnic groups. And when the colonial masters came, there was nothing done to unite the ethnic groups. The amalgamation of 1914 didn't consider the various ethnic groups. And um, I was so unfortunate. In Nigeria, we have what we call North and South, just like every other state in the world. But unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, depending on how you see it, they're not happened to be Muslims. The South happened to be Christians. And uh, they have different cultures. So when 1960 came, Nigeria became an independent state, all those issues that were not discussed began to crop up. First of all, there was election crisis, which you know, and it was said that they not manipulated his figure during the census. And uh, it was also said that the Grand Masters favored the North because the North happened to be 
uh, an Islamic state, and the, the colonial masters didn't want to cause um, upheaval. So they managed the north and accepted their own culture. And um, when the dependence came, many things started happening. All those things that were not discussed, they're coming on board. Then the issue of coup of 1966. And it was of very unfortunate that it was termed an Igbo coup because the, the leader of the coup happened to be Major Cardinal Zog, who happened to be uh, an Igbo from uh, what we call um, uh, Delta speaking part of Delta State. So, and unfortunately, most of the people killed in the coup were from a particular section. For instance, um, the prime minister was killed, happened to be from the north. Then Amadou Bello was also killed, happened to be the premier of northern region. Akintola was killed, happened to be from the west. Ukutiebo uh, was also killed. So most of the people killed were from a particular session. So it was as if an ethnic group rules against the other. Then, to make the matter worse, the person who emerged as the head of state, Agiros, happened to be from a particular ethnic group. So when he came on board, it was as if he was propelled or he was encouraged by his own ethnic group, which happened to be Igbo ethnic group. So when Hiroshi came on board, Hiroshi also brought under small government, traditional government, and um, he was unable to punish those who led the coup. He didn't punish them. He only put them in prison. And uh, he was doing that, only him could explain why he didn't punish them. There was a counter-coup. That counter-coup brought Yakub uh, Gawon, who happened to be uh, his chief of army. And uh, uh, the seconds that brought Gawon on board, people from the east didn't like it, especially the governor of Eastern region, which was then Colonel Chukwemeka of Mebojuku, who argued that Gawon was not the most senior officer because of that. He couldn't have emerged. Ojuku preferred Brigadier General Zakari, no, uh, General Gundi Femi, who was his chief of staff, private quarters. But very unfortunately, Ogundipe could not even assume power because he was opposed by northern soldiers. They didn't want him to take over. So that was the beginning of the civil war because it was the two military officers on the part of Nigeria, Yakubu Gowon, on the part of uh, Eastern region, and not Biafra. And there were several efforts made to reconcile the two warring parties, which, uh, of course, the role played by the OAU then, then and the role played by Ghanaian um, uh, head of state, Lieutenant General Joseph Ankara. It called for a meeting, which we, famous, which we know in Nigeria as the famous Aburi Accord. And in Aburi, they raised several issues, but very unfortunate, those issues 
were not implemented. When they came back to Nigeria, other things started happening because the world did not understand some of the terms Ujuku used during the uh, Aburi meeting. So when he came back, he refused to implement the agreement they had in Aburi. And Ujuku insisted that everything they agreed upon in Aburi must be implemented to the core. And Gowon refused. That was when the civil war started becoming more and more imminent. Then all efforts to reconcile the two failed. And before you knew it, uh, Gowon attempted to create states, 12 states. And out of the 12, three will come from uh, Eastern region, meaning that Ujuku's threat will be attenuated to reduce his territory so that he won't have command over a large territory. And Ujuku responded by creating Biafra. That was how the hotel started. That was how journey to slaughterhouse started. That was how the issue of civil war started. What did the respective orders of battle look like for the Nigerian and Biafra navies? Okay, I know when um, when the when Biafra was created, uh, there was nothing like Biafra Navy at the onset. What people were hearing was Biafra Army, Biafra Army, Biafra Army, Biafra, because Army happened to be the largest in Nigeria uh, and also in Biafra. So when um, but before the war, before the war, there was a ship which was on Eastern Patrol under an Igbo officer, left-hand commander uh, Pascal Ordo. He was the commander of the ship, uh, Seaworld Defense Boat, called NNS Ibado. So as the gulf between Enugu and Lagos was widening, maybe intentionally he refused to return the ship to Lagos, despite the orders from naval headquarters for him to return the ship. So he didn't return the ship until Biafra was declared. So Biafra naturally inherited that ship as the only known ship in that position. And um, uh, before uh, some Biafra retinues and officers left Lagos, because when Biafra was declared, the bulk of the officers from the east started going home. They saw themselves as unwelcome in Nigeria. Most of them still going home. And um, unlike in the army, where some officers and soldiers were killed, nobody was killed in the Navy. The Navy allowed every officer to go. The Navy said, if you want to go, you can go. So many of them left. But something happened before they left. Well, nobody can ascertain whether it was done by the fleeing Biafrans, but the flagship NS Nigeria was cannibalized. It was vandalized. All the navigation equipment in the ship were destroyed. By who? Nobody knows. But uh, since there was tension in the land, somebody will naturally assume that it was done by the fleeing Biafran uh, uh, naval officers. So when they left, when they left, they went and formed the nucleus of 
the Biafran Navy before others started joining. How would you describe the maritime geography where the majority of the fighting took place? Okay, uh, you know, this naval warfare, majority of the fighters took place in, in what we refer to Niger, in Nigeria today as south-south, around the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, you talk about Boni, you talk about Putakot, you talk about Calabar, you talk about Escavos, you talk about uh, Peterside, and uh, in fact, the whole uh, southern uh, part of the country where we have the uh, streams uh, that could carry anything that we may call ship. What was the Nigerian naval strategy at the war's outset? Okay, uh, talking about Nigerian neighbors, you know, uh, we are talking about um, something that happened many years ago. Nigerian neighbors all sided Nigeria, Cameroon, Niger, Chad, all, all of them sided Nigeria. Because if Cameroon didn't side Nigeria, I'm thinking the war wouldn't have ended in favor of Nigeria. It was because Cameroon was solidly behind Nigeria. It was not easy for Biafrans, for Biafrans to smuggle in anything. Mind you, there was economic blockade imposed on Biafra, both on land, sea, and air. There was no way Biafra could get in anything from outside the world. And uh, the federal government uh, was lucky that uh, Cameroon supported Nigeria and um, other countries uh, around Nigeria supported Nigeria. And Biafra was just left alone. It was later that some African countries organized Biafra. So Nigerian neighbors were actually on the side of Nigeria. And that was why uh, it was easy for the federal government to gain ascendancy over Biafra during the war. How frequently did the Nigerian Navy execute amphibious operations, and how did the Navy plan and execute those operations? Okay. Uh, the first amphibious operation by the Nigerian Navy was the famous Boni landing, because, uh, maybe because the ship of Nigerian Navy, whereas Nigeria was cannibalized, Biafra did not believe that the Nigerian Navy had the capability of mounting amphibious operation on Biafra. It took Biafra by surprise. Biafra never knew it would happen. Maybe because of the terrain, they never knew that the Nigerian Navy will ever mount amphibious operation. And that was why the area was poorly defended by Biafra. Biafra concentrated on northern sector, on Stroka area and other areas. So they left couple of soldiers to defend the entire uh, coastline. So they never expected it. And the Nigerian Navy also tried because after the vandalization of the LS Nigeria, they now decided the first thing they did was to sack all what we may call non-essential civilians from Nava base. They asked all the civilians in the base to leave. That was the first thing they did. 
The second thing they did was to keep everything they were doing as a top secret. Only those in command position knew what was happening. Navarities were not allowed to know what was happening. So they kept everything secret and nobody knew when they started moving. And um, thank God they had uh, uh, Railway, who was a British uh, uh, expatriate um, uh, officer in the Navy. He was able to give the better advice. So, um, uh, in fact, when they landed the Boni, the next day, the only ship possessed by Biafra was destroyed because Biafra was caught on her ways. So, the first amphibious operation, and uh, according to Fortunately, available. Those that have interviewed, I have also read around. I couldn't see. They say that that bony landing happened to be the first amphibious landing in the whole of Africa. So it was done by Nigerian Navy. It was very, very successful because there was there was no resistance on the side of Biafra. So they landed their troops. Only that during the war, Ujuku was an expert in propaganda. He was able to use propaganda to halt the movement of the landed troops. Because from Port to Boni is just about 80 kilometers. And it would have been easy to move to Port through Boni the first day they landed. But Ojuku boasted that he was going to sink every ship that tried to move into Port so, and um, Nigerian authority believed him. They thought he had the capacity to uh, sink any ship that tried to move to Portaco through Bodhi. So, even, even to attack Portaco, they had to travel a distance of 400, 480 kilometers. 480 kilometers. That was what the Federal Troops of the Termare Commando did before they were able to move into Portaco. So, um, Boni was taken on the first day, yes, but that was the only thing they did. They couldn't move, they couldn't um, uh, move beyond that place because of the post of the Biafra head of state. So they only remained in Boni and was trying to plan for further operations. There were also uh, other, um, like the one they did in Calabar, the, the Oron and Peter side, they were couple of uh, amphibious operations. However, you may not call them amphibious in the conventions of it. If you use the knowledge of today, you may not call those things. Uh, it happened to be the most successful among all the amphibious uh, landings made by the Nigerian uh, armed forces. And it was largely between the Nigerian Navy and Nigerian Army that Nigerian Air Force was not involved. It was between the Navy and the Army. Now, you brought up Port Harcourt several times. What happened in the battle for Port Harcourt? Okay, the battle of Port Harcourt, the battle of Port Harcourt, you know, like I said, NNS, a battle which was under the command of an Igbo officer. It was uh, renamed PNS Ibado, Biafra Naval Ship Ibado. So that was the only known ship possessed by uh, Biafra. Nigeria, which their own NNS Ogoja under the command of Lieutenant Commander 
Hakim Aduo. Aduo eventually became a vice admiral in the Navy and is still alive. I interviewed him. He was the commander of PNNS Ogoja. And uh, the commander of PNNS Bado was Lieutenant Commander Pascal Odo. The two were classmates. They, they were classmates. They joined the Navy together and they were, they were friends. So according to Adu, Adu said when he sighted Ibado, he signaled uh, his, his friend to hold, but he refused. Then um, Biafra equipped uh, Ibado very, very, very well. But um, Ugoja was a bigger ship, so to say, also equipped. But Ibado had a problem. Ibado was not firing well. The gun kept jamming. The gun kept jamming. So if you fire, you have to kill it before you fire again. And he kept on maneuvering, moving around the water. Very unfortunate, not all the bodies, all the part of the water will be able to carry the ship. So the ship ran aground and provided a fixed target for Goja. Goja started firing until uh, one of the cannons got Ibado and set it on fire. But um, very fortunate, all the people on board were able to escape. Nobody died. They escaped into the mangrove. And if you know the terrain of where we are discussing, mangrove forest, you can't even see, you can't see beyond more than two poles because of the mangrove forest of the area. So it was not that it was not an open uh, battle, so to say. And Biafra, Biafra feared engaging the uh, Nigerian Navy in open battle. That was the only open battle fought between the two navies. Others were in remote areas where Nigerian Navy never expected seeing Biafrans because Nigerian Navy was operating in the area or areas they charted. Those areas they were sure could carry their ships. While Biafran Navy was busy operating in the areas that were uncharted, where the Navy, Nigerian Navy never knew that the, the, uh, some people would be there waiting for them. First and the only major encounter between the two navies was the battle around the, uh, the Gemma uh, of Potakot channels. That was on the 25th and 6th of July. You just spoke a little bit about this as far as the differences uh, in Biafra Navy operations, but uh, can you tell me anything else about the way those Navy operations differed from the Nigerian Navy? seems like a, a lot of this is taking place as well up rivers and in fairly shallow waters. Both navies were amateur. In fact, they started knowing about warfare in the war front because the bulk of officers of the Navy came from the East. So when Biafra was declared, they left Nigeria and joined Biafra Navy. Because of that, Biafra felt to, that she had a better Navy than Nigeria. Nigeria on her own, because Nigeria didn't know that Biafra could use Anything that could move on water as a military uh, ship, they never saw it coming. 
Nigeria felt it had a better navy. So, and uh, Biafra was very, very careful, knowing fully well that Nigerian Navy was better equipped. Biafra refused to engage the Navy in open battle. During that time, and even now, there were, and there still are, many revolts in that area. There were, and there still are, many streams in that area. And because there were too many, Nigerian Navy was only operating in the area they have charted. They were very sure that could carry their vessels. Biafra was more or less operating what we may call a, a guerrilla operation, Itaron operation. They will hide in remote area and cover everything and um, camouflage with grasses. So Nigerian Navy may not even know that Biafra was waiting for them. Biafra would just hit and disappear. It was more of hit and run. And that was why the war also lasted for so long, because the Navy, Nigerian Navy, this time around, was only looking for Biafra Navy in the open sea. And they never saw. They'd be patrolling the, 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 the high sea, looking for the Nigerian Biafra Navy to come. And mind you, that was during the time of economic blockade. The Navy effectively carried out the blockade order given to them by the federal government. There was, it was only, only a ship, I think from Holland or so, they call it uh, Uzina, that tried to come in and it was seized by the Federal uh, Navy. So apart from that, there was no known seizure made by the Nigerian Navy because the blockade was total. And before any ship will come into that area, you must get clearance from Lagos. So people complied. So Nigerian Navy was looking for the African Navy in the open sea, and it never happened. That is why you may hardly see major encounters between the two navies, apart from these much more operations where Biafra Navy will hit and run, hit and run, because Biafra was able to invent her own brand of warships, which they nicknamed the coastal patrol crafts. Some of these things may not be called ships in the conventional sense of it, but whatever thing that could move on water, they will try to make it to look uh, or to, to, to serve military purposes. They will put in everything that will make the vessel to look like military vessel, and they will force it to conduct military operations. So in um, counting the number of uh, engagements, major engagements, or the differences between the two navies, one difference is that Nigerian Navy was operating on open sea. The African Navy was operating on uncharted parts of the sea. That is the major difference. What's been the legacy of this conflict for the Nigerian Navy? Do they now maintain both blue water and brown water capabilities? Uh, well, we may say we may say yes. We we we, we keep both, and um, we have learned a lot from the Civil War. We have learned a lot from the Civil War. 
And uh, that's what is also guiding us today. Before the war, the approach was different. Now the approach is uh, different. The only thing, the only thing that everybody is about the war is because Biafra had what they call research and production unit, uh, RAP. And RAP was the aging house of Biafra, producing weapons for Biafra. That's what we call Ubuniwe. Ubuniwe means muscular, muscular weapon that can kill the mass. So and Biafra engaged all the experts in the University of Nigeria Soka then. All the experts, they were all forced to begin to produce weapons for Biafra. And uh, very unfortunate that the, when the war ended, the federal government declared no victor, no vanquish, meaning that nobody won the war and nobody lost in the war. But uh, the federal government refused or maybe didn't know how to utilize those brains. People were thinking that the federal government will engage those Biafran experts that was manufacturing weapons for Biafra, that was um, doing all of things for Biafra, so that during the peace time, they will be able to put those things in practice. Maybe now it would have been more uh, uh, better than we are today, but those things were allowed to die. Nobody engaged those people. And weapon, weapon manufacturing is not something you can do on your own. You must have the backing of the federal government. You must have uh, uh, legal backing before you manufacture. So nobody, nobody was called to interrogate and say, how did you do this during the Civil War? If you were able to do this under war situation, you may do better in peaceful uh, a moment. So come and do those things you were doing during the Civil War. But it was not done, but on the, on the, on the, on the um, part of the Navy, yes, we maintain, we are aspiring to be a very big Navy, to have a very big Navy in, in the world, in Africa and everywhere. But we maintain both because um, Navar, Navy is an arm of the force that is very, very expensive. Very, very expensive. So it is not uh, an arm of the force that you can just uh, say you want to have. If you look at uh, the challenges and the controversy before Navy was established, some saw it as uh, a venture that would gulp a huge amount of money. Some others saw it as something that we must have as national pride. So uh, now the federal government are now conscious that you don't have to have patrol crafts alone. You have to have ships that can actually fight because uh, most of the ships we had that time, we inherited. It was during the Civil War that the federal government started making the effort to buy combat ships. So the legacy of the war um, is very, very large. We have learned a lot of lot from the war. And today, but uh, Nigerian Navy is the best, at least in Africa.
but um, we still have a long way to go. Well, I'm sorry that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Lawrence Okechukwu Udiagbala. Uh, Lawrence, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Okay, I have a couple of works I'm doing now. Um, uh, one, I'm working on um, a paper I entitled The British Navy and um, the Slave Trade on the Atlantic Coast. I want to see uh, what they did and how they, well, the Navy was able to uh, implement the ban on slave trade. That's the first work I'm working. Then I'm, I, my thesis uh, was on the Navy and Nigerian Civil War, which started from the beginning of the Nigerian Navy up to 1970. So I am doing a study on the development of the Nigerian Navy from 1970 till date. It is a work that is 70% complete. I'm hoping that before the end of the year or so, I'll be able to complete so that I'll be able to discuss what happened in Nigeria between 1970 and 2022. Well, this both sound tremendous. Uh, once you finish it up, uh, please reach out and see if we can bring you back on to discuss them. But thank you again for joining us. To the listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.